range of books on topics from yoga and Indian culture to George Harrison to the Holocaust. You've produced documentary films for PBS and Disney. You've been a featured speaker at the Pentagon, the Judge Advocate General's College, among other things. You're a regular instructor before the state bar associations on issues of war crime law. Joshua Green, you've got an impressive resume. Welcome to the Cultural Scavenger. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Joshua, when did you start writing? Uh, you, you have a, a body of work. You must have started as an infant. I did, actually. Um, um, my mom passed away about six months ago, and in her affairs, I found a letter that she had kept from me when I was 10 years old, addressed to New York publishers, saying, to whom it may concern, I would like to be a writer. W-R-I-T-T-E-R. <laughs> so you knew early on that's what you wanted to do. I guess I did, yeah. Well... From that day as a 10-year-old, how long did it take you to become a successful writer? Oh, gosh. Um, we could debate, I guess, ad nauseum the idea of successful. I, I'm, I think some innate talent for writing is helpful, but um, often it's serendipity, you know, meeting mm -hmm. someone who wants to give you a chance, who, who thinks you're worth take a gamble on and, you know, gives you a column or gives you an assignment and, and you learn, you learn, you, you have to, you have to be an avid learner. I don't think you can write or say anything worthwhile if, if you're not a good student of life, if you're not willing to just go out there and visit museums and, and travel and see the world and, and, and listen to music and expose yourself to nature and art. If you don't know who you are, you have nothing to say. It seems that uh, your wheelhouse these days is, is Holocaust related. And to bring that perspective into what's going on today, you know, I'm sure you've heard you know, people have compared Trump to Hitler. And the perception was that Hitler and a handful of people, and you mentioned this in one of your speeches, that but you made the point that it was really the nation that was behind it. You know, there wasn't just a handful of people. They all bought into it. And I think that we see that today in the, at least that's my perception of it, that the hardcore 30 to 40% of this of our population, while they're, they haven't hit true full-on Nazi mentality quite yet, they're well on the way. What do you think of it, you know, in terms of what you write and what you see today? The conditions around us right now are scarily reminiscent of Europe in the 1930s, late 20s, early 30s. Um, you know, Trump didn't invent white supremacy. He, he took advantage of, of, of an anger and a bitterness that was already out there and and uh, gave it permission to manifest, you might say. Mm -hmm. uh, I think our humanness is fragile, and there are forces roiling beneath the surface of our lives. And under the wrong circumstances, they're given impetus to come out, and they can cause extreme damage. You may have seen in the footage of the January 6th insurrection, the rioter, 
storming the Capitol wearing the, the sweatshirt that said Camp Auschwitz. Oh, yeah. With on it. Yeah, that, you know, uh, racism and anti-Semitism are at the heart of uh, white supremacy. And, and um, I think if Siggy Wilsick, just to bring this round to what brought us together initially, if he were around today, he would say, don't think that just because you're not a Jew, this doesn't concern you. Right. Don't think that. That's yeah. a mistake. Yep. Today, they're, they'll go after the Jews. Tomorrow, it'll be every other Im- immigrant group. And that's most of the nation. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he would say, don't be foolish. You know, be, vil- be vigilant. Be on your toes. Be prepared to respond. And, and um, he would have probably alerted people that there's no neutral ground here. Those who do nothing, the so-called bystanders, side with the perpetrators, not yep. the victims. Yep. Do you think, you know, people say, well, it could never happen here. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. You know, I'd like to think that, that a, a Nazi regime or some, something crazy like that couldn't happen here, but I'm not, I just don't know. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a hard lesson. Um, we're, we're accustomed to taking for granted um, constitutional safeguards, legal protections. Of course, some of us in this country are a lot more vulnerable than others. You know, I'm, I've become extremely sensitive to how privileged my life is as a white, educated male mm-hmm. who can pay his bills and, and is in relatively decent health. But we are all vulnerable to this. It's um, it's a very, very hard lesson. You know, we think democracy is always going to be there. Yeah. It's always been there for us before. It's going to be there in the future. Nazi Germany showed us other, otherwise. Yeah. That that a civilized people. I mean, not Germany in the ninth in the mid century was the most cultural and educational nation in the world. Yeah. The, the country of Goethe and, and, you know, music and art. And, and yet there were college-educated SS officers who would get up in the morning, kiss their wife and children goodbye, report for work at the nearby uh, concentration camp, spend their day drowning Jewish babies in buckets of water, mowing down innocent men and women with machine guns and then go home for dinner. Yeah. It's weird. We're fragile. Our human condition is fragile. Yeah. And it needs to be protected and nurtured. Your latest book coming out in April, Unstoppable, is a David versus Goliath story. It's uh, the story of Siggy B. Wilzig's astonishing journey from uh, an Auschwitz survivor to a and, and penniless immigrant to a Wall Street legend. Now, you said, and I love this this quote from you, it, it, you said that this book is for people who love a good story and still see a book as a cherished friend. That's just, a, that's just great. Now, Joshua, there have been other inspirational stories about Holocaust survivors. I mean, frankly, anybody that survived the Holocaust to me is inspirational. But what makes Siggy's story so compelling? 
Well, first of all, I, I have to confess to you that I was done. I, I, I did not want to, to write this book. I was finished. I had written perhaps a dozen biographies of Holocaust survivors and reports on war crimes trials and so on. And, and uh, I, had, I had had enough of the darkness. I was finished yeah. with it. Then one day the phone rang and it was Siggy's son, Ivan, who inherited his father's animated character. And, and he yells into the phone, you're the one. I'm, I'm what, like Neo <laughs> in the Matrix? I mean, what do you mean I'm the one? Said, no, you're the one who's going to write my father's The chosen line. one. <laughs> the chosen And I, I said, okay, tell me about your father. He says, well, he was a survivor of Auschwitz. I said, stop right there. I'm very sorry. I'm not guy. <laughs> Can't I'm, do I'm, this. I'm, I'm finished. I'm No more darkness for me. And he says, are you kidding? Darkness. My father was a blazing torch. He was a, a beacon of hope for all immigrants. You know, And he went on and on. And uh, I did a little research, and uh, uh, sure enough, Ivan had not exaggerated his father's achievements. Siggy arrived here with nothing at age 21 in 1947. This little guy, five and a half feet short, wow, with no education, no money, no contacts, no family, 59 family members murdered by the Nazis. And... By the time he passed away in 2003, he left behind him an oil and banking empire with more than $4 billion in wow. assets. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, how did he do that? <laughs> That's a story <laughs> worth looking at. Yeah, just that in and of itself. And he was a he was a big philanthropist, too. I mean, he was... Uh, he, 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 he helped build the Washington Holocaust Museum. He was... He was brought on board there to the council by his good friend, Elie Wiesel. Right. And uh, funded construction of law schools and synagogues and, and built communities in New Jersey. His banking empire was in New Jersey. And uh, uh, homes for the aged and, and, and hospitals. and um, You know, this was a man who could have taken... Luxurious vacations to to the Bahamas every weekend. You know he didn't. You know he could have lived like a playboy. He didn't. He he took what for him was God's gifts. He was a believe deep deeply believing man, and used it to to champion justice and and the underdog, because he had been on that side of the coin. Yeah. So he knew what it was like. To have no one fighting for you. He knew what it was like to be facing overwhelming odds. When you say David and Goliath, you're absolutely correct. He took on some of the biggest giant monsters in history, you know, the, the Gestapo and, and the SS and and Jew haters in, in, in American anti-Semitic businesses after the war. And, and the Federal Reserve tried to get him to separate his two companies, oil and banking. They said it was a conflict of interest. It wasn't, but he took on the Federal Reserve. He fought them you know, to the Supreme Court. So his message would have been, don't back down when you're confronted by bullies. Bullies are, are just cowards who, you know, are a little bigger. You know? Yeah. And, and if you're fighting for a righteous cause, you will find that there are resources that will come to your help that you could never even have imagined existing. It's so disturbing to see 
in a slightly different way, the parallels between Nazi Germany and what's going on today. When I, when I read about you and your daughter and, and the campaign that you've been waging, uh, I, I honestly didn't, I can't understand what it's like to live in your skin. I mean, with that memory. Um, but I, I was keen on talking with you for this very reason. I think any thoughtful, feeling person lives with a, a certain confusion about how it is that we humans are simultaneously capable of such magnificent creations of art and, and science and, you know, the aspirations of the soul. And yet there's this other dark side to our nature that emerges and all it takes is a little bit of encouragement in the wrong direction for that to come out. And we have to try, right? I mean, that that's what I admire about what you're doing. We don't necessarily think we're going to change the world, but we'll be damned before we go down without trying. That's it. It's like trying to get Section 230 repealed or at least amended. I just want my day in court. I just want to go after the bastards and punish them and, and hopefully make the change there. And you're right. Um, you can't even strike out unless you, you know, go to the plate and take a swing. And I've been doing that five years now. Switching gears for a minute. What, what do you like the best? You're, you're a writer. You do uh, speeches. You do filmmaking. You know, you have, you're behind several documentaries. What do you like the best? What's it like in a room full of lawyers? <laughs> <laughs> There's, there's a joke in there somewhere, but we're not going to go know, there. I know, but I'm no. bummed. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the thing that ties it all together, Andy, is storytelling. Yep. You know, it's the oldest human art. It's the thing that it's the basis of, of, of all endeavors, really. I've had, I don't know how many lawyers have told me that the guy who wins in court is not the guy who has the overwhelming quantity of evidence, but it's the guy who tells the better story. Sure. Yeah. Well, and that's what the podcast is all about. It's telling stories. Right? I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I before I went to sleep at night, even if it was a school night, I used to sneak my little battery-operated radio under my blanket and listen to a guy named Gene Shepard. Mm -hmm. Now, Gene Shepard was this fantastic raconteur you know you just tell these wonderful stories about when he was a kid at christmas and this happened and that happened. and uh may maybe that's it i mean not, you're making me thoughtful now maybe that's what launched <laughs> me on a career of, of writing is uh I, I love stories and i love to tell stories yeah and there's an art to it well you want to hear a story yeah let me hear a story right. i'll tell you i'll tell you a siggy wilzig story from the book yes um, please do he was uh a was 18 years old, and uh, the camp Auschwitz was liberated. The, the the officers, the administrators, heard the German, the, the the Russians coming from the eastern side, and they decided to march all the remaining prisoners who could still walk out of Auschwitz in Poland to camps deeper inside Nazi Germany. And so Siggy, along with several thousand others, was lined up. It was January 17th, 1945, and sent on a, what's now called the Death March uh, in freezing cold winter snow. And he had only a rag of a blanket around him. 
and his shoes uh, in the cold and slush, the, the shoelaces deteriorated and fell away, broke off. If he couldn't keep his shoes on, he would get frostbite and die. What did he have? Well, they didn't give him anything. You know, you don't get a goodie bag when you leave Auschwitz on the death <laughs> march. But he, in his pocket, he had kept a spoon. He had a spoon. And he had um, kind of scraped the edge of the spoon down so that he could use it to cut things. When they stopped for the night, he saw a birch tree. And he went over to the tree and he used the spoon to strip pieces of bark off the tree. And then he rubbed them between his hands to warm them up, then braided these little bits of bark together, wrapped them around his shoes. And sure enough, they held. Wow. So a thread of bark literally saved his life. That's how he lived his life for the rest of his days. He never saw defeat. He never admitted to defeat. He would not accept defeat. If he saw something worth going after, there was always a way to do it. There's always a thread. There's always a piece of bark somewhere that he would find. He was, was an amazing guy. It's a story about being resourceful and resilient. Yeah, we're, we're, we're living in a time when the, the, um, the pressures on people just to get through the day are so intense that we forget that we have those resources. Mm -hmm. They're there. They're there. And if you just allow the fears to subside, remembrance of those resources can return. It's an extraordinary thing. You know, we're in that sense, we are our own worst enemies when we fall prey to our fears and our um, anxieties. And then, you know, that's the other hat that I wear is the, the, you know, the yoga philosophy hat where we, through breathing exercises and through asana and study of texts, we come to remember something that's always been inside us that but has been forgotten and it's it's not a converting to anything it's not a taking on of something foreign or alien it's it's a remembering and it's it's extraordinary that um i found in holocaust testimony which is when eyewitnesses to the holocaust tell their own stories in their own words there's the same phenomenon that happens in yoga, this return of suppressed memory. Now, in yoga, it's, it's a memory of ourselves as, as, as beings of light, <laughs> what we were before the world imposed all of these titles and labels and names mm -hmm. and responsibilities on us. And now it's, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> there was, you know, a child. A child is innocent and, and bright because he hasn't been you know, damaged by all of that acculturization yet. Uh, and in Holocaust testimony, in the hands of a, of, a, of a qualified facilitator, memory will return and you will hear a witness, a survivor, as they're often called, recall events that may have been suppressed many, many years ago. One of the things that I found so impressive of, of, about Siggy Wilzig was how willing he was to share memories that many other su survivors would never want anyone to know about. 
they, you know, survivors don't talk about themselves as heroes. They talk about the unheroic things they were obliged to do just to survive. And they don't always want to reveal those things to people. Siggy had no problem with that. Right. He wanted people to know what had happened. He fought hard to preserve Holocaust memory. How did you decide to write about George Harrison? Yeah. Completely different deal. It's it's a it's a way of, of a very much a departure from from Holocaust. Well, in pursuit of that literary career, when I was nineteen years old, I went to the Sorbonne in Paris, and on the Christmas break in nineteen sixty nine, went to London as a tourist, just to visit mm-hmm. London. I got there, and um, some people had suggested I visit this beautiful temple, this ashram. Mm-hmm. near the British Museum, in a building that George Harrison had rented for the uh, the monks and the, the students there. So I show up, and they're serving uh, this vegetarian lunch. It was very beautiful and very tasty, and uh, it was a really lovely environment. Then they asked me about myself. I said, well, you know, I'm in college, and I'm studying this. And what else? Well, I play organ in a, in a college band. It was soul music back in those days. And they said, really, you play organ? Oh, come with us. And we barrel up the stairs into a Volkswagen minibus. Andy, I don't know if you remember the Volkswagen minibus. It was the most dangerous vehicle ever (laughs) released on the streets of America or England or wherever. Anyway, this thing is rocking back and forth down the street. I say, where are we going? And they say, you'll see. The door opens about 10 minutes later. And we're in front of this elegant building with the number three on the door. I'm thinking three. This is three Savile Row. This is Beatles headquarters. What the heck is going on? So we walk in, go downstairs, and sure enough, there's George Harrison. You know, my idol. You know, if you weren't alive in the 60s, you don't know what it was like. Oh. To meet a beetle was like, you know. That was like meeting, meeting God. That was it. I'm, I'm done. You know? <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. That's it. You know. So they, he hands me, comes over and hands me a harmonium, which is this hand-pumped uh, keyboard instrument from India. And he says to me in that, you know, uh, unmistakable liver puddly and accent, hey, it's nice to have you with us. You know, just play along a little bit and we'll see how you do. <laughs> That was very good, by the way. (laughs) So they start recording Indian devotional music. And I'm sitting there jamming on this harmonium. I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I stay with these people, I get God and the Beatles. Okay, I'm in. Um, Yeah, that's right. Where where do I sign? Where's my contract? End of argument. End of discussion. (laughs) So that got me into yoga, and I've been practicing ever since. And that's so how I'm you got into now. So what is that? It's a half century, more than yeah. a half century. So that how, that's how you got into writing about George, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, it was a thank you mm-hmm. to him you know, after he passed away uh, for really being very encouraging. He was the kind of guy who was a warm, friendly person, as long as you treated him like a human being. If you approach George Harrison with that little twinkle in your eye, like, ooh, now I'm with the Beatles, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He would notice it, he would recognize it for what it is, and he would walk the other way. Yeah. By by the time I met him, which was 1970, he was done with that. He he didn't want anything. He would call it Maya, you know, the illusory worldly identity. Right. Know, he, he was into spiritual things. Siggy tells a story. Do you mind if I tell you another Siggy oh, story? Oh, yeah, tell it, please, by all means. 
Siggy Wilsig was 20, 21 years old when he took his first airplane ride. After liberation, he volunteered to work for the U.S. Counterintelligence Corps, hunting down former Nazis from the camps as a way of thanking his liberators. And his job took him on an airplane ride somewhere. And it was a cold, rainy, gray, cloudy day. And they got in the plane. The plane took off and it climbed up, up, up and broke through the clouds. And on the other side of the clouds, it was this beautiful, bright, sunshiny day. And the sky was brilliant. And Siggy said, in that moment, this is him talking, telling this story to interviewers from the Spielberg Shoah Foundation toward the end of his life, just a few weeks before he died. He said, in that moment, my faith in God was reconfirmed. God was speaking to me, saying, I never left you. Sometimes a cloud like Hitler gets in the way, gets between us, but I'm I'm, I'm still here. I'm always here. Good story. Thank you for sharing your stories and your body of work. For those listening to the podcast, please be sure and pick up Joshua's latest book coming out in April, Unstoppable, as well as uh, all the other books that you've written. And those books are available, as my publisher would say, the books are available wherever books are sold, including Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Joshua, thanks so much for joining me. I can't remember when I've ever had so much fun sitting up. (laughs) I'll take that as a compliment. (laughs) A very unlikely one. Thanks, Joshua. Take care. Take care, Andy. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Mary Ann Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, Please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening. <laughs>